Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. 2022 was another full year of news that was dominated in part by the war in Ukraine and closer to home the midterm and state elections. We talked to the team of the CT Examiner to see what they were reporting on in this year. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Another year over, and as we head into 2023, we look back at some of the big stories and issues that affected us living here in Connecticut. The news, of course, was dominated by Russia's invasion into Ukraine and the continuing war there. And closer to home, the midterm elections and state elections had us all wondering what would or wouldn't change with the Democratic and Republican parties here in Connecticut and across the nation. But of course, here in the state, there were plenty of other stories being reported on that were just as important. So for our review of 2022, I caught up with our friends at the Connecticut Examiner, an award-winning online newspaper, and began by asking Greg Stroud, the paper's editor-in-chief, to give us an update on the continuing success and expansion of the newspaper. Greg, it's been an incredible journey for the Connecticut Examiner. I believe it's, what, over three years now you guys have been going? Three years, and I think we're six months now. Talk to us a little bit about it, because it's incredibly successful. You're expanding. Just give us a sense of, you know, what's happening with your online newspaper. So we we started, as you know, in, in uh, 2019 with uh, an investor who brought us uh, venture capital to start up. And we started out as just a team of three. And now I think we're, are we full-time, Kate? Are we six or seven? And we're up to, let's see, we started the year with about 100,000 regular readers and we're we're about 170,000 right now and statewide. So it's been a, it's been a big year for us. You've also been expanding into so like other markets within Connecticut, you know, further down the shoreline. Explain to us, you know, about that and where you're sort of like now reporting because you're reporting a lot further down as I say the shoreline and across Connecticut as well than when you originally started. So it's it's one of the funny things about Connecticut is it's it's a small state but it's it's a fragmented uh, media environment. So there's very few people in Fairfield County that read news about the rest of the state and to some extent it works the other way around. And so we've made an effort and part of our mission is really to be a statewide paper. And so we we added Angela Corella who can't be here today. But a veteran reporter, I think 36 years with the Stanford Advocate, we we hired her at the beginning of the year. And Sophia Muche, just out of college, we hired also to work in Fairfield County. So it's part of our, um, we started out in South southeastern Connecticut, and now we, our single uh, largest readership by far is Fairfield County. 
And Kate, tell us a little bit as well about obviously, you know, the the growth of the Connecticut Examiner, because you've been obviously with the online news portal for a considerable amount of time, obviously, and helped to be part of its success. Well, it's been really exciting. We started with Julia Worth, who is still actually freelancing for us. And and I were the first two reporters. And then we've grown. Um, we have at least six now. Not sure how many we have actually, including some freelancers. And it's just been phenomenal. You know, I think we named it Connecticut Examiner because we wanted to cover the entire state. And slowly but surely, we are getting there. And it's started with the southeastern area. And now we're in Fairfield County. And, you know, I expect we will be covering all corners soon. It's pretty exciting. And you yourself, I mean, uh, like all of the, the staff members, I mean, incredibly busy. I mean, just give us a sense of some of the sort of like areas that you're covering, because I know that you cover quite a, a large variation of stories. Sure. Well, my um, one of my passions is zoning. So I continue to cover zoning across the area. Zoning is a huge issue in Connecticut because there's you know, there's sort of a local control versus state control argument that is constantly going on. It's It was a big issue in the last election, what various candidates' views were on that issue, whether they wanted regionalization or complete local control. So there's also an issue with affordable housing and the law of 830G, which allows developers to override local zoning in some instances. And so there's just a big, big argument about how much control the towns should have over their environment, over their density. So I keep covering that. Um, that cover, And, you know, because that controls economic development. Uh, quite a bit in the areas around Connecticut. So that's one really big issue. Right now, I'm also just wanted to catch people up a little bit for an old Saybrook, which is about um, this place called the Preserve, which is a large area that was preserved using town funds. And then there were some state funds used for that. And right now, the state came in at the last minute and said that they were allowed to do logging there. So I'm just catching up on that story. I think it's pretty fascinating. It kind of fell, it kind of went under the radar last year. (laughs) And um, it's going to come alive again this year with a bunch of studies. And, you know, that created, I think a lot of people were upset, but it was kind of under the radar. So I wanted to talk about that. And the other thing that's coming back is the rail issue. There was a bypass that was proposed in 2016-17. And now there is a capacity study that is coming back that is going to look at whether or not that bypass is possible or whether some other alternatives might come in. It's a major, major issue for Connecticut. It's huge. So those are some of the things I'm thinking about right now. And also, of course, with that rail thing, of course, um, here in southeastern Connecticut, fairly recently, they were talking about that. Well, they are funding a feasibility study of possibly extending the reach of the railways, maybe into Rhode Island, but also from New London up into Norwich using freight rail lines which will be interesting and it is interesting that they got the money and they're they're looking into it so well, yeah that will be one to to watch out for i want to turn to the reporters as well because they are of course the backbone as well of connecticut examine i'm going to turn to amelia first amelia education is like the area that you cover quite a lot for the connecticut examiner give us a little taste of some of the stories that that you've covered this year i mean with education there's never a dull moment i think that some of the questions that probably the entire nation is facing right now and Connecticut is certainly no exception are the school districts got a pile of money during the pandemic from the federal government, which they're using to 
you know, for a whole bunch of different things, everything from helping homeless students to providing what they call social emotional learning, um, after school programs, academic catch up, all of these things, that funding over the next few years is going to run out. And there comes the question of what's going to happen now? Are the school districts going to be able to sustain what they've put in place? And has it been long enough for these students to return to or get to the academic level that we would hope they would be at, especially with the losses that have happened during the pandemic. These are a lot of the conversations going on, especially around academic learning loss. How do we catch students up? You know, another thing that's always on the table with education is special ed. I've spent quite a bit of time looking around at different districts, seeing art students getting the special education that they have a right to under the law and um, that they need. And we've done some some looking into various districts on that. And then finally, just thinking about as the demographics change, not only in Connecticut, but across the nation, you know, school districts are trying to figure out what does it mean to be inclusive, to bring in these new communities and these new cultures into these districts. And many times these new languages, bilingual education or multilingual education is an area that is really lacking right now. How do we bring these communities together? How do we bring them together in a way that everyone gets to share their part and everyone feels included? Yeah, indeed. And the other thing, of course, that we've been reading about are mental health issues as well for students, certainly up um, in my neck of the woods in eastern Connecticut in the Killingly area. The state is, uh, is to hold a hearing about uh, mental health issues for some of the students up there, but also our Ivy League school as well. I mean, Yale has been in the press as well with regards to its alleged policies when it comes to students who are diagnosed with mental health issues. So those are certainly stories that uh, will continue to be covered, obviously, by yourself, and uh, I'm sure we'll be hitting the headlines. Brendan, going to turn to you now. Energy, again, always another big so like subject, if it's not state peer, it's, you know, it's the electricity producer and the public utilities regulatory authority. Talk to us about some of the stories you've been covering this year. Apologize for my voice. I've been sick for, for the past week or so. Still trying to get that back. But but really the the big issue now, obviously, is is just the, the cost of electricity. And that's something that, you know, people in Connecticut have been concerned with for a long time, you know, pretty consistently having some of the highest bills of the nation outside of Hawaii. And this year, usually the focus is on on the cost of the distribution, which is really where Eversource and United Illuminating make their money. But this year, we're obviously seeing, you know, huge price increases uh, just with the the cost of supply, uh, which is something, you know, relatively new. And And it really comes down to just the region being so reliant on natural gas to to power our electric grid and, you know, just not really having a reliable supply of gas to fuel those plants, especially in the winter when, you know, a lot of a lot of that fuel is being diverted for for home heating. And, you know, for the past five or so years, gas prices have been, you know, low and stable, hasn't been too much of a concern. But now this year, obviously, we have across the world a, a war in, in the Ukraine that has really upended global energy markets and a lot of the liquefied natural gas that that New England relies on in the winter to to really keep the power plants going when the the pipelines bringing in natural gas from from Pennsylvania and elsewhere are are constrained that's now going over to Europe and uh, just the the prices are are skyrocketing and and that's why we're seeing 
you know, people are going to be seeing $250 electric bills just for using, you know, 700 kilowatts of, of energy, which is not not a whole lot. And I, I think that's going to be a, a big issue for the next couple of years, it, it really seems like. And, uh, you know, lawmakers are talking about some reforms they can make to just how electricity is bought. I'm working on, on a story on that now that should be coming out pretty soon that'll look at some options that they have there. But really, it, it comes down to just this reliance on on natural gas and the solution is going to have to be you know some kind of diversity in you know how we're producing power and you know the utilities are are really pushing offshore wind as as kind of the long-term solution because it runs it runs well in the winter which is when the issues arise for new england obviously but those have been delayed and delayed you know all all sorts of reasons permitting opposition uh, at the local level uh, just costs increasing. Uh, so that'll be something to watch over the next couple of years is just how that develops. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and when it comes to the energy as well, I mean, we're looking at the Public Utility Regulatory Authority, Pura as well, has done, uh, you know, an amazing amount of work with these utility authorities, but um, to a certain degree has uh, found its hands shackled because of obviously how deregulation has occurred in this state. And you know, gives them a certain amount of power on on certain things. So that'll be an interesting development to see how Pura continues to deal with these issues as well. And I know the Attorney General, William Tong, quite vocal about the the energy situation as well. Just very briefly, I just want to touch on with you as well, Brendan, and we could do obviously an entire podcast about State Pier in New London. Continuing issues with that, if it isn't money, overruns, you know, now the Contracting Standards Board potentially looking into how uh, one of the contractors involved um, with the project was actually giving out contracts to itself. I mean, just give us a quick update on that. Yeah, and the the Connecticut Mirror has done a, a lot of reporting on that that contracting issue, where the main contractor uh, on that project has been really been selected for a lot of the like the the smaller bids within the projects, uh, recommending themselves and then and then being selected for it. Um, sometimes at, at costs that were higher than some other bidders. And obviously that's a concern for a project where, you know, we've seen the the costs escalate from, you know, it was first pitched at $93 million back in, it was a 2019 and it's up to 255 million now. And, you know, there's concerns about, there's more costs increasing as they, they kind of run into the problems that you run into with any construction project, just unexpected things just increasing costs. And it, yeah, it, it'll be certainly interesting to see just how tight it gets to to the edge of their budget. Uh, obviously, David Kors has, has promised that, you know, they're not going to ask the state for more money. But, it, you know, if it comes down to it, they're not going to, you know, just not finish the project over a, a couple million dollars. So that'll definitely be, be something to watch in the next couple of months, because that's supposed to be end of February is when they're supposed to really have that pretty significantly completed and ready for for Eversource and Orsted to, to start using for offshore wind. It is the story that keeps on giving. We will be keeping an eye on that one, and you certainly will as well. I want to turn to uh, Sophia now. Tweed Airport, something that you've been covering a lot about. I remember when I used to live down in New Haven, Tweed Airport, a great little airport, but... Um, 
sort of underutilized, always needed a longer runway. And then, of course, there was the subsidy it was getting from the city of New Haven. Give us an update on that, because, of course, that's been hitting the headlines again recently. Yeah. So obviously, Tweed is expanding more into that East Haven side. It kind of toes the line between New Haven and East Haven. And that has elicited kind of a big reaction from East Haven residents that live around there, as well as New Haven residents. But from my experience, it seems East Haven has really been leading this charge. And I've I've talked to them. I've you know gone to their houses around the Tweed Airport. They wanted to show me how low the planes fly. And I've gone to meetings and they're very, very passionate about this because this is where they live. And now this airport is expanding and they're dealing with later flights into the night. And they really show out at these meetings, the airport authority meetings run by Sean Scanlon, who I've spoken to a lot as well. And they go and, you know, they really let their voice be known, which I found is important with these smaller communities. And it's really been interesting to see. And up next, we have the environmental assessment coming out. And a lot of East Haven residents, as well as New Haven, are calling for an environmental impact statement, which will go further. And, you know, it would delay the project, which I think could could be a big goal of theirs. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as in the next coming few weeks when that comes out. And to say the the city of New Haven itself, what's been coming out of uh, the city of New Haven? Because it used to be that they used to fairly heavily subsidize Tweed Airport. Yeah, there's been a lot of support from the New Haven side. You know, just municipally, you have the East Haven side where their mayor, Mayor Carfora, is now pushing back against Tweed. But on the New Haven side, they seem to be supporting it. You know, they're hopeful that this will help their economic development that they're moving towards. They want to expand transportation and the air is going to play a big role in that. So they are really fueling the charge. But like I said, some of the residents that live around there, not so much. So it's interesting to see that dynamic between the government and the residents around there. Yeah, absolutely. That will be an interesting one to to keep an eye on as well. Greg, I want to get back to you, obviously, you know, the bigger picture again, looking at the Connecticut Examiner as a superb news source for people here in Connecticut and beyond. You got some awards, did a redesign, but also moving towards a subscriber model. Talk to us about some of those aspects. Part of our goal has been to sort of find a balance in our reporting. It's nonpartisan. We try to appeal across the political spectrum. I'm proud that we actually have everyone from hardcore Trump supporters to the greeniest of green supporters will come to us for news and a lot of people in between. And it's part of our mission. And and the other piece is, of course, that the tricky part is, uh, which I've been working with Kate on, is how do we make this sustainable? How do we fund this news project? And we have a plan and we think we can make it work. And that's $15 a year. We've costed it out and we believe that we can support ourselves with our readership at $15 a year and to use that money, not just to uh, sustain ourselves, but we have a plan actually to add staff. And uh, hopefully this winter, we'll be adding a couple more reporters. Excellent news. And, uh, you know, $15 a year is a very, very good value, certainly for the quality of the reporting that uh, one's going to get, you know, for that amount of money. And of course, some awards as well. You won some awards. Give yourself a pat on the back. Just quickly tell us about those awards as well, because they're just as important. 22 awards this year. Kate is the one that submitted all the award applications and handled that for us. 
the New England Newspaper and Press Association. Press Association, right. That is 457 newspapers across New England, 22 awards. We're very proud as well that uh, Amelia Adi won the Young Reporter of the Year Award for 2022 across all of New England. That's quite an honor. And for me, part of what I'm proud about it is that part of making the new sustainable is to to create a business model and a working model that young people with talent will come in and they will succeed. They won't drop out. We provide them with the resources and a, a healthy workplace for them to thrive. And I think for the first time this year, we had Amelia won the award and we brought in our, our first really fresh reporter straight out of college, Sophia, and she's actually done a superb job, is too young yet to actually compete for any of those awards, but we expect her to be winning awards next year. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to all of you as always, and we're so pleased that um, success continues to be on the horizon there for the Connecticut Examiner. The reporting is, as we know, it is award-winning. It is great reporting. It is a good read, and uh, obviously the proof is in the pudding with the expansion and also obviously the amount of people that continue to use Connecticut Examiner as their source of reliable news. To all of you, thank you ever so much. It's always a great pleasure talking to you. I know you're all incredibly busy. Have yourselves a great holiday season and a new year, and uh, we'll be looking to see what stories come up for next year. Certainly cannabis is going to be on that list, and obviously the new legislative longer session, and um, whatever fallout comes from obviously the elections which occurred this uh, year as well. So uh, plenty of news stories for all of us for 2023. And uh, to all of you again, thanks for being on Connecticut East this week. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. And if you haven't read the reporting of the CT Examiner yet, then head over to their website at ctexaminer.com to see their award-winning reporting. And remember, independent quality news doesn't come for free. So please do support them and our other online and traditional newspapers here in the state to make sure we're able to do our job and keep democracy in check and hold our leaders both locally and nationally accountable for their actions. people won't give you the real talk on drugs, but it's time we know the facts. Fentanyl is killing people. It's a powerful opioid, often made illegally and commonly mixed with illicit drugs. It can even be pressed into counterfeit pills that resemble prescription medications. Just two milligrams, about the size of a few grains of sand, could potentially be lethal. This isn't an ad to scare you, but it is an ad to make you think twice. Get the facts. Go to realdealonfentanyl.com. This message is brought to you by the Ad Council. Got deer problems? Let us help. With Green Valley Tree LLC's Deer Preventive Spray, guaranteed to keep deer away from your precious plants, bushes, and trees for up to six months. With cold weather on its way, deer will be looking for sources of food. Don't let your front and backyards become their pantry. Call Green Valley Tree today at 860-234-4041 or visit us at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Work at the controversial State Pier in New London is about 75% complete and on schedule to achieve substantial completion by February of 2023. That's according to an update by the Connecticut Port Authority's Interim Executive Director Ulysses Hammond during a final Board of Directors meeting for 2022. 
Hammond said five of six key construction areas are ahead or tracking on target, but they are still dealing with pile driving issues and underwater obstructions at the site. While still on target for completion this spring 23, as we informed you at the October meeting, additional testing of the piles that comprise the anchor wall has confirmed a lack of tension capacity or strength within the soil, which requires an additional set of micropiles at the south wall and perhaps the annex. Hammond did not say how much these additional micropiles would add to the cost to State Pier or how it might affect the overall timeline for completion. The project should have been completed by August 2022 and is millions of dollars over the original $93 million budget, now standing at $255.5 million. One of the delays is due to underwater obstacles causing continued issues with pile driving at the site and the unique nature of the project, as Marlon Peterson of ACOM, the project construction administrator, Explained. Rock sockets must be drilled into the bedrock to provide slope stability underneath the pier prior to the dredging of that berth pocket. Again, that's one of the unique characteristics both at the delivery and installation berth associated with offshore wind. The requirements are five times the typical loading of a container terminal. The State Pier project is also subject to ongoing federal and state investigations, and the Connecticut State Contracting Standards Board is investigating Kiwit, the construction management company, into how it's been awarding contracts for the project, with many of them awarded to themselves. In the day this week, Scott Bates of Stonington will not be continuing in his role as Deputy Secretary of the State under new Secretary of the State Stephanie Thomas. Bates has served in the position for six years, but recently Thomas announced in a news release that Jacqueline Cozim, a Democrat who has worked in nonprofits, advocacy organizations, political campaigns, and government agencies, would be her new deputy. Bates' term ends once the new administration takes over on January 4th. In a December 20th Facebook post, Bates said a public farewell to his position and detailed some of the initiatives the Secretary of the State's office undertook during his tenure. Bates had served as the Connecticut Port Authority board chairman from the authority's formation in 2014 to his abrupt resignation in 2019, just before the quasi-public agency overseeing a major development project at State Pier in New London became embroiled in scandal over skyrocketing spending and allegations of improprieties. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, as part of an ongoing discussion on beefing up law enforcement in the town of Stirling, officials have reached out to Plainfield Police Department leaders to explore whether that agency might be a good fit for the town. Stirling officials earlier this year floated the idea of rejoining the state police's resident state trooper programme after a reported uptick in nuisance crimes including loud motorcycles and other civil disobedience type issues. The town left the state police programme in 2010 after nearly 20 years due to budget concerns. Sterling is currently covered by state troopers out of the Troop D barracks in Danielson. During its November 16th meeting, the Board of Selectmen approved a multi-month research plan that will reach out to Plainfield police officials on cost and staffing options, while also gathering similar information on the resident state trooper programme. And also in the Norwich Bulletin, a Killingly School Board committee tasked with finding alternative student mental health options to a school-based health centre is slated to review a draft proposal from a different school-based health centre operator. The Board of Education Ad Hoc Group, initially formed in the fall, is expected to discuss a proposal from Community Health Centre Inc. or CHCI to operate a school-based health centre in Killingly. The company currently oversees more than a dozen such centres across the state, including 
Reading and Groton and New London school districts, according to the agency's website. The group states its centres are staffed by licensed healthcare providers who work with school nurses to provide, among other things, behavioural health services to students. The CHCI option first presented to the committee on November 30th is strikingly similar to one rejected by the board in March that proposed allowing Generations Family Health Centre to operate out of Killingly High School. But unlike the Generations model, the CHCI plan requires parents to opt in before a student can avail themselves of their in-school services. The lack of such an enrolment requirement was previously cited by several board members as the main reason for voting against the Generations plan. And in the Connecticut news junkie this week, a highway tax on large commercial trucks, an expansion of the state bottle bill, and the elimination of criminal records of certain cannabis-related convictions are among the new Connecticut laws that will take effect from January 1st. And the beginning of January will also see the expungement of records relating to roughly 44,000 cannabis possession convictions. The automatic erasure of the record stems from the 2021 law which legalized the possession of marijuana by adults and set in motion the recreational cannabis market, which will begin selling to Connecticut adults over the age of 21 years, starting on January 10th at 10 a.m. from nine medical marijuana dispensaries across the state. Two of them in eastern Connecticut will be in Willimantic and Montville. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year.